this is Dr. Guy. And this is Dr. John. Two brothers from other mothers. Welcome to Diseases, Death, and Doctors. If it's your first time, we'd like to welcome you to the pod, a storytelling podcast that discusses the non-chronological history of medicine, because it's easier that way. Um, so, Dr. John, today we are going to discuss Chick-fil-A's favorite virus, smallpox, the opposite of largepox, and friend to no one. Ooh, interesting. And I, I gotta, I gotta admit, I'm not well versed in this topic, so I don't, I honestly don't get the Chick-fil-A reference. Please tell me. Because it's a pox virus and they come from cows. Oh, that's It, it could be a stretch. That's embarrassing. Well, we've already taught our listeners one thing and me another. You don't like Chick-fil-A? <laughs> I, um, I'm more of a Popeye's guy. I went and got the spicy chicken sandwich from Popeye's uh, for the first time last week, and it blew my mind. I don't know if you've ever had it, and Popeye's, if you want to sponsor this podcast, please let me know. Um, but it is the best chicken sandwich I've ever had in my entire life. So I'd almost feel like I was having an affair with a piece of poultry if I cheated on Chick-fil-A for such a thing, but I've heard you're not the only person that said this. You know, um, did- Dr. Guy, go find, a, go find a Popeye's, put your sunglasses on, put a baseball hat on. And uh, eat that spicy chicken sandwich. And a let fake me know. mustache. I will. <laughs> yeah. Let let uh, let me and the listeners know um, what you think of the head to head comparison between Chick Fil A and Popeyes. I feel like we we've digressed. digressed. What were we talking about? <laughs> uh, so we are talking about smallpox. All right. So uh, what exactly is a smallpox? Well, smallpox is an infectious disease caused by one of two virus variants, variola major or variola minor. And no, I looked this up, major does not cause large pox. The initial symptoms of the disease are pleasurable enough, a little fever, a little vomiting, followed by painful sores or ulcers in the mouth and a skin rash, always nice. And over a number of days, the skin rash transitions into a characteristic fluid-filled bump with a dent in the center. With time, the bump would sloth or fall off, leaving a disfiguring scar. So basically, if Botox is a fast way to improve your uh, facial appearance, smallpox is a fast way to do the opposite. You should definitely Google it. It's definitely worth a Google. Visibly, very impressive. Also very disturbing. The World Wide Web loves a very good black and white uh, photo of an unfortunate individual smallpox, it appears. Five out of five. Would recommend to a friend. (laughs) Um, If you were really, really lucky, you'd actually contract something called hemorrhagic smallpox. Um, And that caused extensive skin bleeding, but bleeding into the mucous membranes and the GI tract as well um, as just underneath the skin's surface. And in this presentation, the skin did not blister, but remained smooth. Instead, it took on a black or charred appearance, secondary to the subcuticular bleeding. And uh, that sounds awful, but luckily this was only about 2% of the cases. The exact origin of smallpox is unknown, but the earliest evidence of the disease dates back to the 3rd century BC in Egyptian mummies. Um, By the 18th century, it's estimated that approximately 400,000 people died a year of the disease. Uh, The disease... The deaths include six monarchs and also cause blindness in about a third of those that were ever infected. Um, Smallpox is thought to have killed 500 million people in the last 100 years of existence. And as recently as 1967, 15 million cases occurred per year. 
Whoa. The death rate was approximately 30% and decidedly greater in babies who were exposed to the virus. And uh, fortunately, thanks to a coordinated global vaccination effort, the last naturally occurring case of smallpox occurred in 1977. Um, that was followed by the World Health Organization declaring the global eradication of the disease in 1980. That is ridiculously amazing. Take that, anti-vaxxers. I know. You guys are digging us a hole. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah, so, I mean, outside of historical interest, uh, why do you think we would care about smallpox today, uh, Dr. John? Well, we got to make episodes and make those sweet, sweet podcast dollars off of something. So I thought that's why we were talking about it. Or maybe a segue into large pox or medium pox. You hit it right on the money. No, actually. So, well... If it were to occur, let's put it this way, the reemergence of a pox virus, specifically smallpox, would have potentially devastating consequences for humans worldwide, um, as increasing numbers of people obviously lack immunity to smallpox at this point. Uh, there is growing concern that this could potentially occur through a terror-related inoculation or even just the natural reemergence. And this isn't entirely without merit or simply a doomsday rhetoric. Uh, in fact, during World War II, scientists from the United Kingdom, the United States, and Japan were all involved in research into producing a biological weapon from smallpox. Now, plans of large-scale production were never carried through as they considered that the weapon would be uh, less effective just due to the wide-scale availability of a vaccine at the time. But in 1947, the Soviet Union established a smallpox weapons factory in the city of Zagorsk. Nice. I just said that quickly because I knew I wouldn't be able to pronounce it. So back on uh, back on point with my mispronunciation of cities outside of the United States of the Americas. <laughs> um, and uh, about 75 kilometers to the northeast of Mac Moscow is where the city was. Uh, and an outbreak of weaponized smallpox actually occurred there during testing um, at that facility um, in 1971. Um, currently, there are only two confirmed laboratories containing the smallpox virus, the CDC in Atlanta, Hotlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, and a safeguarded lab in Russia that they call uh, the Vector Institute in Siberia. In the early 21st century, there were reports that the CIA believed additional nations had access to secret stores of smallpox, including North Korea, Iraq, prior to the Second Gulf War, and France, but these claims have not been proven accurate. Um, so smallpox was described uh, by the author Richard Preston um, as a demon in the freezer. Mm, I, there's, I feel like there's a freezer burn joke here somewhere. There might um, be. <laughs> I think the reassuring thing about all this, though, is that basically Trump and Putin are the only world leaders that have access oh, to yeah, the, no. the virus. That's that's super reassuring. <laughs> no, nothing to see here. Super, super stable, rational individuals. <laughs> super stable geniuses right there. So where did smallpox originate? Now, if you've been listening to Disease, Death, and Doctors for any duration of time, you know that we love a good origin story here on the pod. And it uh, turns out that no one really knows. Mainly it appears that the uh, virus is just simply old as dirt. Historians believe uh, the smallpox was probably introduced into China during the first century AD or after death. Or if you're a pagan, we can say current events. 
from China likely traveled to Japan around the 6th century, leading to a Japanese epidemic that between 735 to 737 killed off approximately one-third of Japan's population. And in the 9th century, the Persian physician Razis provided one of the most definitive descriptions of the virus and was the first to differentiate it from measles and chickenpox uh, in his collection of Kitab fi al-Jadari wa al-Hasba. Nailed it. be confused with the Kaspa, which rocks. <laughs> totally nailed that pronunciation. Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry. Don't be offended. Um, loosely translated into the book of smallpox and measles. So the arrival of the virus into Western Europe um, is also not so clear. The virus is not clearly described in either the uh, the Old or the New Testament or in Greek or Roman literature. Um, and it is assumed that Hippocrates or his uh, contemporaries would have commented on its existence, you know, because it was kind of a big deal. We know that St. Nicaisus of Rheims, the patron saint of smallpox victims, um, earning that title because he supposedly had the virus and survived. Uh, so I guess better the patron saint of smallpox than chlamydia. But um, he survived a documented and then documented an outbreak in France in 450 AD. Hmm. Um, so the, the reasoning that we think that it started in China is that's where it's first documented. And then the Greeks or Romans don't really document mention it. it. Okay, until we get to the the French in 450 AD. Okay. Yes, you see it kind of pop up in the 700s in Japan, and then all of a sudden it finds its way to Western Europe in the 450s. Okay, and then from there down to the Middle East. That's interesting that um, the Persian physician was able to describe the virus so well. I thought it was interesting on one of our earlier episodes, I think it was the plague, um, or maybe it was a different uh, disease that we talked about, um, but you kind of uh, commented that um, we weren't really sure what this disease was historically um, because there were varying kind of descriptions and it could have been a lot of different diseases. But it seems like this Persian physician felt pretty confident that he was describing smallpox and that this French physician as well was describing smallpox in 450. No, exactly. And it might have been, I want to say tuberculosis, which we may not have released this episode yet. We've recorded it. But one of the big issues are there were different names for the same disease. So when historians go back over the literature, it's kind of hard for them to put it together, especially if there's different presentations. Um, and here, the other issue you're dealing with based on the emergence time in Europe or Western Europe, for that matter, in the Middle Ages, I mean, it was a complete you know, medical shit show in the Middle East and Asia, their healthcare, I guess we can still call it that at that time was well more advanced, but a lot of what had been gained in kind of the Greco-Roman times was lost when we entered the dark ages. So that could be another reason why you see kind of uh, a more sophisticated approach to um, labeling the disease in uh, the Middle East versus what was happening in, in Europe. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Despite several outbreaks of smallpox in Western Europe, it did not become firmly established there until the Crusades. So uh, the Knights of Templar probably had a hand in it. Um, ever read the Da Vinci Code, Dr. Dr. John? Oh, huge Dan Brown fan. Just <laughs> massive. Go to all of his book signings. I actually uh, modeled one of my haircuts after uh, Tom Hanks 
and the Da Vinci Code. Really inspirational figure in my life. <laughs> you're, you're not a David Beckham hairstyle guy. You're a Tom Hanks hairstyle <laughs> guy. Great. Great to know. Tom Hanks, Da Vinci Code. Very important. Okay. <laughs> a pivotal moment in, yeah. <laughs> in your life. Got it. Um, anyway, uh, until the Crusades. And at that point, uh, it became more entrenched in the region thanks to uh, population growth and travel. Um, anyway, the importance of this in terms of global public health cannot be understated. For during the 16th century, as Europeans began their colonial expansion and exploration of the new worlds, they spread the disease to nations and continents near and far. Um, we know that smallpox certainly did not exist in the Americas until the Spanish arrived in Mexico, inadvertently carrying the disease with them. Um, with no acquired immunity to this new disease, the local peoples were decimated by the subsequent epidemics. Ultimately, the impact of the virus played a significant role on the Spanish conquest of both the Aztecs and the Incas. Similarly, English settlements along the east coast of North America led to the uh, led to devastating outbreaks among the Native American populations, where the fatality was approximately 30% for most Europeans exposed. It was as high as 80 to 90% with these newly exposed populations. In fact, historians believe that smallpox and other European diseases reduced the indigenous population of North and South America by up to 90%, um, a blow far greater than any defeat in battle. Wow. Yeah. That's, our uh, ancestors, uh, our ancestors sucked real assholes, big brown eyes. <laughs> yeah. There's no doubt about it. Uh, we're all kind of descended from, you know, terrible people cause they're the ones that survived. Um, but, um, 90%, that is insane. I mean, 30% for most Europeans exposed. So it was one of those things where they just had some degree of herd immunity. And even the ones that got sick did not get as sick as like exactly. a newly described or newly exposed population. Because so, by the time they were coming to um, the new world, so to say, I mean, it'd been a good thousand years of exposure in most mm -hmm. of these countries. And they might've had just passive antibodies or passive exposure. Um and then it just gets reaped on a new population, which I guess, going back to your prior point, that's kind of the concern about weaponizing smallpox is that we've eradicated the disease. And so none of us have antibodies. Exactly. I mean, and just think, I mean, the same thing in about a thousand years could happen to uh, the coronavirus. Maybe one day when we visit a planet in um, galaxy C24, beta alpha 360, um, we could wipe out an entire indigenous populations of aliens. What a beautiful, beautiful thought there. I know. <laughs> it's poetry. More likely, they'll probably have some virus that will wipe us out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, I like your descriptor of the exact galaxy that we're going to as well. Nice, Nicely done. I'm always about six steps ahead. Um, so if you don't believe me uh, in regards to the fact that our ancestors sucked, um, let me tell you a story. Um, no. Recognizing its potency as a weapon. Lord Jeffrey Amherst, the commander-in-chief of the British forces in North America during the French and Indian War, he actually even advocated for handing out smallpox-infected blankets to his Native American foes in 1763. Let's not forget this is a virus that can inflict disfiguring scars and blindness, even if it doesn't cause death. So 
that's, not not cool at all. That's sick bastard. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess the one thing we have going for us at this point of time is that at least uh, this is the British and not quite the Americans at this point in time. Anyway, um, the tactic uh, constitutes a crude form of biological warfare. Um, and fortunately, though, accounts of colonists actually using it, including Lord Jeffrey, which makes me think of Lord Joffrey from Game of Thrones, also a little asshole. Um, but uh, basically... Accounts were actually very scant of this happening. Uh, there's only one clearly documented instance of a colonial attempt to spread smallpox during the war, and it centers around a siege at Fort Pitt, an outpost that would now stand in present-day downtown Pittsburgh. Uh, the fort was under siege by an Indian warriors of the Shawnee, Delaware, and Mingo tribes, all inspired by the Ottawa war leader, uh, Pontiac. And while the siege raged on outside the fort walls, smallpox was actually raging on within the fort. Uh, the fort's commander, Captain Simeon Ecure, um, reported on a June 16th message to his superior that the situation was dire, uh, with local traders and colonists taking refuge inside the fort's walls. Obviously, he wasn't just afraid of his Native American adversaries. He feared that the smallpox disease might overwhelm the population inside the fort in its cramped confines. So when Lord Jeffrey heard of the predicament, he cold-bloodedly saw an opportunity in the disease outbreak. Could it not be contrived to send the smallpox among the disaffected tribes of Indians? We must, he said on this occasion, use every strategium in our power to reduce them. What Amherst didn't know uh, was that somebody at Fort Pitt had already thought of this, uh, i.e. trying to infect the Native Americans with smallpox and had attempted to do it. Uh, William Trent, a trader and land speculator and uh, also a militia captain, wrote in his diary that on June 23rd, two Delaware emissaries um, had visited the fort and asked to hold talks the next day. At that meeting, after the Native American diplomats had tried unsuccessfully to persuade the British to abandon the fort, they then asked their British host for provisions as well as liquor for their return. Um, the British complied and also gave them gifts, two blankets and a handkerchief, which had come from the smallpox ward, hoping it would have a strategic effect. And kind of in a way, this is why I think our moms always told us you should never take booze or blankets from strangers. Is um, that something that your mom told you before going to school? Not in my drink. She's like, <laughs> if you hang out with that friend of yours in med school, that Doctor John, make sure you keep an eye on your cocktail. He's known. <laughs> he just uh, very suspicious. Cuts me to the core. Cuts me to the core. He's a a spiker of the drinks. Uh -huh. um, but I mean, at the same time, I do think it's kind of nice that in combat back then that you could have like a, you know, have a talk to try to negotiate a surrender and if it didn't go well be like well i guess just send me home with some bourbon some whiskey some blankets i'm we'll sorry the up. negotiations didn't go well here's a bottle of moonshine and a blankie um but yeah but the patchwork on that blanket was nice betsy yeah. ross would die for it beautiful stitching exquisite so it's not clear whether or not the smallpox infected blankets even worked, uh, leading to the desired effect. But the Native Americans around Fort Pitt were already struck hard by smallpox. Obviously, if it was inside the fort, it was ravaging the towns and communities outside as well. And in the spring and summer of 1763, there was a significant widespread infection throughout. Obviously, the Native Americans could have come down with the disease by other means outside of the contaminated blankets. But with that said, 
the contaminated blankets likely did not help, nor did the fashion forward handkerchief. <laughs> Pocket square. I like when I tie it just so. <laughs> um, another intriguing story in the history of smallpox takes us to Boston. Um, in 1721, uh, Massachusetts colonists were terrified by the new small uh, the news that smallpox had arrived in Boston was striking down colonists. The first victims, passengers on a ship that arrived from the Caribbean, were locked in a house that was identified only by a red flag hanging on its entrance. Um, and that red flag read, God have mercy on this house. Personally, uh, I feel like that flag should uh, hang on the door of every resident workroom in the hospital, especially on July 1st. But uh, That sounds wicked hard. Wicked hard for those Bostonians. Yes. Terrible. Better than mine, but also terrible. Oh, man. I thought it was kind of good. Do it one more time. <laughs> Wicked hard. Five different the, sentence. Park the car by the Harvard Yard. All right. If I tell you it's good, will you keep doing it? Maybe use that accent for the rest of your commentary throughout this podcast. <laughs> I lose it. Can... It's it's not great to start with, <laughs> but I'll just like lose it randomly. Until we churn up some some new business and uh, with some Boston listeners. Uh -huh. um, ultimately it would actually be a slave who would be credited with saving the city. Um, despite it's uh, racist attempts to ignore his scientific advice um, during the growing citywide panic, a slave by the name of Onesimus uh, suggested a potential method to keep people from getting sick. His owner, a Puritan minister by the name of Cotton Mather, um, who had named Onesimus after a biblical slave, um, meaning useful, hashtag knowledge bomb. Mather Cotton was actually also one of the powerful figures that played a role in the historical dumpster fire that was the Salem witch trials. So this guy gets around. Um, but Cotton, it was said, was distrustful of all slaves. But he described Onesimus as a quote unquote, pretty intelligent fellow. And he was fascinated when his slave told him that he knew a way to protect him from the looming epidemic. Onesimus told his owner that in the past, he himself had had smallpox prior to his arrival in America, stating that one day he had smallpox and um, next day he did not. His mild and temporary infection occurred after he underwent a quote unquote operation that was said to preserve whoever was brave enough to try it from the virus forever. The operation that Onesimus referred to involved rubbing the pus from an infected person into an open wound on the arm. This essentially was inoculation, uh, which differs from a vaccine, but the described process we now know would effectively activate the recipient's immune response and protect that individual from the disease most of the time. So the slave owner was fascinated. Um, and he spoke to other slaves, all of whom verified this medicine. Uh, Cotton learned that the technique was practiced in Turkey and in China. And upon his, this discovery, Mather became an evangelist for the process for inoculation. He would share the technique with a man by the name of Zybedal Bolston, a physician and outspoken minister who became the only other individual that supported the use of inoculation in this city. The origin of the technique coming from African slaves resulted in anger and distrust amongst the population, um, or the locals, so to say. And outrage was actually so great that despite their attempts to help others, um, Cotton and Bolson were even attacked um, as the colonists feared that the slaves were attempting to infect the city and revolt in the confusion 
and death that followed. Um, and then they believed that these two men were either involved in the plot or too stupid to recognize the plan. So I will say for what it's worth, I mean, despite the uh, racist origins aside, um, I feel like I would probably be pretty skeptical um, as a colonial myself. I think we've seen from other episodes that rubbing viral pus in an open wound uh, sounds kind of stupid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that tomato, tomato. Um, but yeah, that doesn't sound uh, doesn't sound great. But I'd, I'd never heard that story. That's super fascinating. Um and yeah, I think the... Uh, it didn't work during the, the Black Death, I'll just say. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. I mean, Heavy it's fail. like inoculation slash vaccination is very different from, you know, actively infecting. And the fact that this, you know, um, technique um, coming from China, um, the Caribbean, um, etc., resulted in inoculation and not active infection is, you know, fairly unique to this disease um and pretty interesting um it is sad time in medicine though that basically your your treatment algorithm was all right let's perform an exorcism that didn't work let's rub pus from the infected person into that person's tissue yeah maybe it worked can't tell (laughs) let's mercury (laughs) you wouldn't want to do that with ebola i don't i don't think probably not a COVID either no no, no, no. But, um, you know, back to the story. So as expected, eventually the smallpox epidemic did spread from the ships in the harbor to the population of Boston and sickened about half the city's residents. Boyston uh, sprang into action, inoculating his son and his slaves against the disease. And then he began inoculating other Bostonians that did trust him. Um, of the 242 people he inoculated, only six died. One in 40 as opposed to one in seven deaths among the population of Boston that didn't undergo the procedure. So overall, the smallpox epidemic wiped out about 844 people in Boston uh, during that outbreak. And that was about over 14% of the population at that time. Another good one. I think this one's, uh, this is kind of one of those interesting uh, diseases just because of the kind of implications it's had historical uh, historically. But Another story uh, with significant historical context was the role that smallpox played during the American Revolution. When uh, American colonists launched their revolution against Britain, they quickly encountered a second but invisible enemy that threatened to wipe out the Continental Army, um, highly contagious smallpox. Luckily for the young nation, the Army's commander um, was familiar with this formidable foe and George Washington's embrace of science-based medical treatments, despite stiff opposition from the Continental Congress, including Benjamin Franklin, um, prevented potentially disastrous defeat and made him the country's first public health advocate. So there you go, Mm. George. (laughs) Honest George. No, honest Abe. But George Washington George, was also he honest, chopped right? down a cherry tree, right, and yeah, told but, somebody about it. But he could never tell a lie. No. So both George and Abe were honest. He could ain't a, own a slave, couldn't tell a lie. <laughs> it's a complicated history here. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, dark patchwork times. Yes. 
Uh, story for another day, though. So anyway, Washington's inside information leading to his vigilance came from personal experience with the horrors of the smallpox epidemic. Uh, Washington was actually struck with smallpox as a teenager in 1751 while visiting the Caribbean island of Barbados. At the time, the disease caused by very, uh, the variola virus um, killed as many as one in two victims there. Um, and Washington was severely stricken by the illness, but uh, he was lucky. Um, after a month of chills, fever, painful pustules, um, he emerged with a pock-marked face uh, of typical survivors, but alive and with immunity to the illness. Uh, Washington's encounter, though, with the virus proved fortunate for the new nation because in 1775, smallpox again arrived in Boston, carried by troops sent from Britain and Canada and Germany to stamp out the growing American rebellion. And many of these soldiers had been exposed and were therefore immune but the vast majority of the American colonists were not, strangely enough. And so in the aftermath of the battles of Lexington and Concord, Washington's Continental Army had set up camp across the Charles River from the stricken city. And to the dismay of many patriots seeking refuge from the British, the general prohibited anyone from Boston from entering the military zone. He wrote, Every precaution must be used to prevent the virus from spreading. He sternly warned one of his subordinates about the virus. Um, and by immediately isolating anyone suspected of infection and limiting outside contact, Washington prevented a disastrous epidemic among the Continental troops. And in March 1776, when the British withdrew from Boston, Washington even specified that only soldiers who had suffered from smallpox um, would be allowed in the city and its surroundings. Um, Washington actually wanted to be more proactive regarding the virus because he feared a strategy of social distancing would impair his military strategic ability. And hence, inoculation against smallpox, uh, as we said before, dated back to ancient China. And in fact, China um, would actually powder smallpox scabs and then would blow them up the noses of the healthy. It's really <laughs> innovative. It's like mm -hmm. little smallpox cocaine. Sn snorting smallpox. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Miami, <laughs> back in our day, <laughs> you and your cocaine. <laughs> um, so people would then uh, develop a mild case of the disease and from then on were immune to it. And so that technique did have about a 05 to 2% mortality rate, but hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do sometimes. Um, it's considerably less than the 20 to 30% mortality rate of the disease itself. But in colonial America, it was highly controversial because, as noted previously, our tale of Onesimus the slave. Um, and then also, um, the procedure entailed making a small incision in the patient's arm and inserting a dose of the live virus that was large enough to trigger immunity, but small enough to prevent severe illness. However, while the science existed, it was not exact, and tales of horrifying failure resulted in obvious skepticism. Uh, in fact, the son of Britain's king, George III, had died in agony when his dose was poorly applied. He, he OD'd on the, the smallpox lines that he had been provided. But uh, <laughs> So in, in George Washington's home state of Virginia, uh, virulation was actually deemed completely illegal. So he was having to battle this while he was trying to uh, come up with a strategy to protect his army. So Washington, however, was a strong believer in its effectiveness. He even persuaded his wife, Martha, to undergo the procedure in uh, May of 1776. But George Washington himself that month uh, forbade any of his troops from being inoculated because he feared that it would take them weeks to recover. 
and he's figured that at that point with these inoculated men laid low, the fight with the British could intensify. Um, and if the enemy knew um, what was going on, they could certainly take advantage of the situation. He also had to contend, like I said, with the states and localities that strictly controlled or outlawed the procedure. In the midst of the epidemic, the Continental Congress ordered the army surgeons not to perform inoculations. Washington was temporarily hamstrung, but he nevertheless ordered all new recruits inoculated, figuring that their immunity would kick in by the time they were battle ready. I had, and, uh, I had no ahead. idea that. Washington was kind of at the front lines of public health crisis and getting people more or less inoculated slash vaccinated. I know it's kind of it's kind of military strategist, public health servant. Yeah, the guy wore many hats. Cherry tree chopper downer, crosser <laughs> of the Delaware. That's right. So by then, um, it was too late for thousands of American troops who had been marched on to Quebec. Um, Their commanding officer, a man by the name of Major General John Thomas, failed to follow Washington's strict protocols during the uh, ill-fated expedition. So there's no social distancing. There was no inoculation. Um, There was lots of mixing and mingling um, in the communities along the way. And he, as well as up to 50% of his 10,000 soldiers, perished from the virus. Um, The force was hence soundly defeated in Quebec. He uh, would write before he perished that smallpox is 10 times more terrible than the Britons, Canadians, and Indians together. The epidemic spread, but Washington at that point decided to act. He ordered all of his troops inoculated noting to his leading medical officer that necessity not only authorizes, but seems to require the measure. And by the end of 1777, some 40,000 soldiers had been uh, inoculated. Historians say the general's bold move proved critical to the revolution's success. It can be argued that his swift response to smallpox um, and to the policy of inoculation was the most important strategic decision of his military career. So when infection rates drop from about 20% to 1% as a result of Washington's order, even the skeptical Continental Congress was convinced and lawmakers repealed bans on virulation across the colonies. And the first major piece of American public health legislation was hence written. Of course, after winning the war against smallpox, the U.S. went on to win the fight against Britain and solidify its standing as a new nation. Hashtag America. America. America, smallpox, hashtag hey, world, beer, America. hashtag variolation for the win. Yeah, we should really uh, celebrate public health more on the 4th of no July. No talks about this. I know. This is super interesting. I Literally, this is all news to me. Just what a, what a, what a minch that Washington was. What a, what a solid dude. <laughs> Just... Thanks, I mean, for, thanks for finding a way to work in Minch into the podcast. Uh, do you want me to bring back my Boston accent instead? Can you use them both at the same time? <laughs> Can they be combined? It's so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> um, yeah, so by the mid-18th century, smallpox was an endemic, uh, was endemic everywhere in the world, um, with the exception of Australia. During the 18th century, smallpox was the leading cause of death, killing about 400,000 Europeans per year. And, you know, that's kind of nice. I guess in a way, these were the glory days before stupidity became the leading cause of death in most developed countries. You know, <laughs> uh, the widespread use of uh, virulation um, in a few countries, notably Great Britain, its North American colonies and China somewhat reduced the impact of smallpox amongst wealthy classes during the later part of the 18th century. Um, in 1796, the English physician Edward Jenner, uh, not related to the Kardashians, 
demonstrated the effectiveness of using cowpox to protect humans from smallpox. Many European countries in the United States created legislation to establish mass vaccination protocols by the early 1800s, and by the 1830s, the U.S. had created a vaccination program for Native Americans. In 1855, Massachusetts became the first state to mandate smallpox vaccination. Improved vaccines and the practice of revaccination led to a substantial reduction in cases in North America and Europe, but remained uh, uh, smallpox remained fairly robust and spread remained unchecked in most of the rest of the world. British vaccination efforts in India and Burma in particular were hampered by indigenous uh, preference for inoculation. Um, and their distrust of vaccination, ultimately leading to uh, the British government to actually outlaw the practice of inoculation in its colonies and hence force vaccination. Uh, The first hemisphere-wide effort to eradicate smallpox was made in the 1950s by the Pan-American Health Organization, um, and the last European outbreak occurred in Yugoslavia in 1972. Uh, And by 1975, smallpox only persisted in the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia, and Somalia in particular. And as stated at the beginning of the pod, global eradication was confirmed by the 1980s. And using terms from the 1980s, that's rad. (laughs) Tubular. Cowabunga. (laughs) Audacious. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Man, I hope we don't like open up a, a tomb somewhere and the, release them. Yeah, release smallpox. That would suck. Well, I mean, so I don't even, do you think this could even happen in the world today? Like, could you create a mandate for vaccination? I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm all about personal freedoms and rights and civil liberties and all that stuff. Jeez, we we as a nation seem to um, balk against even the most minor inconvenience to our personal lives, i.e. wearing masks during this global pandemic. Um, I mean, it's, it's just... It's so hard to breathe. Yeah. Like, you I mean, know you what? Just, it's <sighs> fucking easier than trying to breathe with COVID. Yeah, with a tube down your throat. Um, but yeah, so like something on that scale, like I just don't know. I don't know if we have the the public consensus or coalition building that it would take to do some of these large projects that we did in the past. This is a terrible thing for any physician to say, but at the same time, I feel like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So at some point, social Darwinism has to kick in. I think the oh, biggest concern with a lot of the anti-vaccination is that there are certain people that can't be vaccinated. Like you know, infants, babies, you have to wait a certain amount of time to fulfill the vaccine regimen. Um, and that's really where the concern is. I mean, if you want to take, you know, your life or your child's life into your own hands, that's one thing, but you do have an impact on the rest of society that you're interacting with. So, I mean, I, I think that's the reality. I mean, at some point you're probably just gonna have to say, well, if you don't want to do it, you'll live with the consequences and the rest of us will go on living with the consequences of making our decision to get vaccinated. <laughs> well, we've gotten really dark here. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I do think that uh, smallpox is a um, beautiful example of how humans working together and using science um, and public health um, have science. completely wiped out an extremely deadly disease that has burdened humanity and wiped out science. huge populations um, since the dawn of man. And I mean, we, we crushed it. You know, high five world. I'm I'm giving an air high five right now. Um, I'm taking it. Yeah, but uh, I'm gonna I mean, take just... your air high five, and I'm so... gonna do a line of powdered smallpox. <laughs> Don't <Science>. do that. <laughs> <laughs> the science would suggest that would be very bad. Also, 
where did you get powdered smallpox? Have you been hanging out in Russia? Oh, I've got a guy. I've got a guy. Uh, well, yeah, super interesting uh, topic. Thanks for walking us uh, through it, Dr. Guy. Oh, no problem. Um, thank you for your time as well, Dr. John. Thank you for our listeners' time. Like I said, I hope we grew more brain cells than we killed this episode, but uh, we, we are grateful for your you tuning in. Um, definitely, definitely log on, follow us, subscribe to this podcast, um, give us some feedback, uh, leave some comments. We, uh, we want to engage and grow, and we appreciate you guys helping us do just that. Yeah, slide into our DMs. Let us know what topics you'd like us to talk about next. Cheers. <laughs>